Welcome to Authority Issues, a podcast about leadership, management, and trying to moderate the unstoppable instinct to do emotional labor. I'm Rachel Perkins, aka Pie or Pie Bob. I'm into words, operations, cheese, and whiskey, and of course, leadership. And the the unstoppable instinct by men to never do the emotional labor. Uh, and I'm Kendall Miller with the right combination of cheap imported electrical massager and high-end Amazon purchased microphones. I can relax and record a podcast at the same time. What a time to be alive. Today on the show, we're talking with Ellen Mary Hickman, Senior Director of Programs at Turing School of Software and Design. Hello, Ellen Mary. Hello, everyone. Thank you for having you for uh, the time for us today. Um, yeah. I'm just going to dive right in like we always do. We want to hear about your path to leadership, to management, to where you are now, um, starting wherever back you think is a good place to start. Tell us about how you got to where you are. Oh, man. Well, a long, long time ago in a small town in Wisconsin. Um, I, I won't go quite, Star Wars quite music. that far. Yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> if I, if I, I needed to be more prepared. In a culture um, far, far away. <laughs> far in a culture that I'm no longer in. Um, I would say that uh, as the youngest of six children, I always wow. was, yes, see, this is deep roots. Um, I was always very aware of group dynamics and what my role was going to be within a group and thought about it a lot when I was in college, considering what sort of my next step was going to be, uh, I had many older brothers and sisters to look up to, many different career paths that were ahead of me, uh, and I decided to become a teacher right out of college. And I would say that was the, um, if you have never been a teacher before, if you uh, don't know many teachers, I, I believe that teaching is one of the paths that, one of the careers that takes you into leadership, whether you're ready for it or not. Um, so in my case, I was in charge of 36 very wonderful fourth graders, um, and leadership was just something that I had to be able to figure out immediately in order to be effective in the classroom and to do good things for kids. I spent a lot of time teaching and learning and growing and figuring out what, uh, what, where I could continue to have an impact. So after I was a teacher for a few years through the program uh, that many people might know called Teach for America, uh, I decided to uh, continue that path in education, worked for a few nonprofits, both in California and then back here in Denver, Colorado, uh, where continue to, I think many times in nonprofit and startup world, um, you are put into leadership positions, whether you're ready for it or not, and whether you want to be or not. And in, in many of those different, in many of those organizations, um, it, you know, it's the people who are willing to go out and do, uh, who are willing to get things done fast and who are willing to try things that get put into leadership positions. And I just happen to be one of those people that can't stand back and watch things happen. Um, so Ellen Mary, I'm curious quickly before you continue, did you learn everything you ever needed to be, learn about leadership from, uh, leading fourth graders? I mean, is there really anything that's fundamentally different or, or has it been very different taking care of adults than it was fourth grader? What a good question. I would say that the, the overall, uh, what I had to learn to lead 
when I was a teacher was uh, so much about myself. And I think that has been fundamental in becoming a uh, high quality leader, a good leader, however you want to sort of qualify that. Um, so as a teacher, I was faced every day with just constant failure, uh, constantly not reaching enough of my students or lessons that were just disasters, literally dumpster fires happening in my classroom all the time. Oh, um, you know, there. <laughs> I mean, well, you know, yes, I can, that'll be a different podcast. Um, <laughs> But it, it really pushed me to understand uh, what my level of resilience was, what I needed to be able to show up every day and be 100%. And I think that's been essential as, as a leader, uh, as you both mentioned, the emotional labor, labor that comes with being a leader or a manager or taking care of other adults. Um, oftentimes, uh, I will say that it was in some ways easier to be a teacher because um, when kids do something uh, that you don't agree with, it's often because they have not learned that yet. But when adults do something that you don't agree with, <laughs> you have to think to yourself, why don't you know that? Um, and mm. so I think there are, a, there are a lot of differences, but so much of teaching really made me reflect on myself and my strengths and my areas of growth and the things that were going to be emotionally triggering for me or um, really just how to take care of myself and how to to make sure that I was also modeling that for my students because uh, kids are really relentless, whereas adults won't say things about you. Kids will say anything. They'll say, Miss, you look really tired today. <laughs> or like, um, Miss, why, why you have coffee all over your shirt? You know, what's, what's, what's going on? Um, and so you just learn a lot. You learn about a lot about yourself and how you can show up in that space. Yeah. And is, is, are the lessons, the big takeaways from that mostly about vulnerability and just self-awareness or were there like, uh, I mean, I guess the self-awareness is something you've already explicitly said, but was it like realizing what burnout looked like, mm -hmm. where you have to give, how to take care of yourself, or was it just humility in the midst of, you know, I don't know, these, these very young 10 year olds? Yeah, pointing yeah. out your flaws or what? How does what does that look like? Sure, sure, all of the above. Um, I will say that um, so much on the self care side, really, so much on the self care side. How do you set appropriate boundaries so that you're not working in your classroom until 10 p.m. at night? And um, really, teaching like many other fields, there's never really an end point. There's never really a mastery point where you say. I, I got it. Like I know exactly how to teach this lesson because your kids are always changing the lesson. Uh, while the content might not change, your who you're who you're teaching changes, and so you also have to change in that. And I think that's a, a pretty significant part of being a leader is really thinking about who am I leading for, um, and what are the things that they need me to be able to do. And if I'm not the right person for that, how do I go get help for that? How oh, do I how do I bring other people on my team? That is so much like, first of all, it's it's uh, someone that we interviewed uh, recently brought that up as well about leadership being and management, effective management being about changing yourself to, to meet the mm -hmm. needs of your team. But this also sounds a lot to me like I, I'm, a, I'm a longtime technical writer and just the idea of like, who is this for? What is the yep. goal here? How do I communicate best with them based on what they know? It's the same rules. I love it. It's, it's awesome. Yep. So from there, so, so from teaching in school, teaching fourth graders, um, what happened next? Yeah, to Teach for America, talk talk a little bit more about some of those roles and, and how you proceeded. Sure. 
after I was after I was a classroom teacher, I worked for um, a small nonprofit out of California and did a significant amount of reform work with uh, at the time. Uh, California schools and, and still now, but under a tremendous amount of legislation and um, funding was tied often to certain programs that you had to have in place. Uh, oftentimes these programs were counterintuitive, so teachers didn't really know how to leverage the programs, leverage the technology. So I worked directly with uh, the role that I played was working directly with a school leadership team, working directly with the principal to align all of their reform efforts uh, and help instruct their teachers how to use their tools better to uh, make their jobs a little easier and also ensure that kids were getting better outcomes. Uh, when I moved to Denver, I started working for a wonderful organization called the New Teacher Project. And under the New Teacher Project, I started with uh, one other wonderful person, the essentially the Denver Teaching Fellowship. Uh, Denver Teaching Fellows was a program that um, much like Teach for America recruited teachers into high need subject areas such as bilingual education, special education, and math and science, and brought them into high need schools, taught them how to be able to teach in those schools, and supported them throughout that process. So significant amount of leadership in a startup setting. We were the first two people to start the program. While we had national resources, we were really on the ground doing everything from the visioning, the planning, the execution, and, you know, the smallest tasks of setting up the rooms every day when we had a training. So learned a lot about how to manage in a very large system. The Denver Public Schools is a very large system. So navigating who, who do you need to know? <laughs> how do you get on their good side? Um, and how do you make sure that your organization continues to be at the forefront of conversation and that the results are really seen and really known and that the great people that you're bringing in um, really feel like they can do this work and are, are supported. After that, I moved back to Teach for America in Colorado and helped run the region for about six years. Uh, so on the teacher leadership side and working with all of the incoming teachers and the many, many alumni who are across the state of Colorado. Um, and yeah, that's that's the path that I took to be able to get to this point. And do those roles, it sounds like there was a, a pretty good variety of stuff happening there, but were those roles largely about standing in front of groups of people and, and training them or were they more, was there more one-to-one, -one, more mentorship involved or, or a lot of both? Yes, a lot of both in um, both the new teacher project work and in my work at Teach for America, uh, working one-on-one -on -one coaching teachers, coaching um, teams of people to be able to lead teachers. My work at Teach for America was um, at the end of that time was in the vice president role for the organization. So had a team of about 18 people across three different teams in the organization from pre-program training to in-program training to alumni support. And so had to both set vision and direction, set a strategic plan, and then work with each of my team leads to be able to help support their teams to execute. Uh, as I moved, you know, it's almost in some, in some ways, it's a lot easier to be a leader when you get to lead and execute at the same time, because you just know, you know what you need to do and you can get it done. Mm -hmm. As you level up and get further away from the product, that's where I think it really becomes about, do you know your team? Do you know your people? Do you know what's going to motivate them? Because you cannot be the producer of what's going to happen. 
So understanding your people, understanding um, how to, where they might have gaps, mm-hmm. what support they might need. Trusting them. What good questions. Yeah, yeah trusting them. What yeah, questions what do you them. ask? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think those, it, it becomes more of the emotional labor. You have to be thinking about people in order to get to whatever product that you want. Um, and so that's, that's, that's been my, uh, a lot of the work that I've tried to do and the training that I've tried to do and my own professional development of constantly thinking about, um, yes, processes are important and I love processes. I love systems and routines and, um, you know, I'm just very focused on making good processes, but you can have the best processes in the world. And if you are not thinking about your people, it doesn't really matter. They're not going to leverage them. They're not going to use them. Um, And if they do, it's probably more out of compliance than it is about really creating and believing in the work that you're doing. What do you think is the most uh, common failure mode for for this particular type of, you know, for for teachers in general and for, for leaders of teachers? What do you think is a a a thing that's difficult? Yes standard problem. I think that oftentimes in in our K-12 education system and something that we really have tried to be extremely thoughtful about at Turing um, as a smaller school, uh, we have a staff of about, you know, I say we're a small school, but we really have a staff of about 22 teachers, instructors that are here. Um, One of the things that happens in big systems is essentially you have so many complex issues that are happening that it feels like the fastest way to get to from point A to point B is to just put in something that that you believe should work for everyone. But as I said before, which is similar in, you know, if you don't know your people, um, kids learn differently, adults learn differently. And so when you try to put in something that essentially uh, try hits on the lowest common denominator, right? Or uh, sort of tries to hit on the bulk of what people should be able to do. Oftentimes you miss the nuance of who that instructor is, who those who's those kids are, who's receiving that product. And therefore it becomes a really frustrating experience to both the receiver mm. and the person who's yeah. trying to execute on it. Not just the kids or whatever, but the, yep. the teacher is, is kind of hindered as well. Correct. Uh, that's super interesting. Yeah. The, the idea that there's a one right solution for mm-hmm. a problem is something I'm tussling with at the moment. Kendall, I, I'm sorry. I, I talked over you before I, you have a question. <clears throat> it's probably the first and last time it'll ever happen. <laughs> um, the, uh, I mean, the, the thing I thought was remarkable about what you mentioned is particularly when you were working across Denver Public Schools, you know, you said something along the lines of uh, who do you need to know to get things done, right? I mean, you, you talked a little bit about knowing your people so you know how to motivate them, but also knowing the right people external so that the work that you're trying to get done actually gets done and implemented. And just talk a little bit more about uh, garnering that support, particularly in that kind of position where you're trying to influence the whole public school system and you're not in a top-down situation where you can come in and say, I'm fucking Ellen Mary, do yep. what I say, or you're fired. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't even know why I would be in a position other than that, because that sounds great. Um, <laughs> but, That's right. Uh, since I've never been in that spot, uh, I would say that I think this goes back to what type of what uh, what reflections do you have and what awareness do you have about your strengths as a leader? I would say that when you are considering 
being a leader, you oftentimes have to do things that you are not comfortable with. And if it's always comfortable, you are probably not doing it very well. Um, and so uh, I am an, a, a very, and my whole team knows this, probably most people that I've met know I am an introvert, a true introvert. I don't like meeting new people. I, it's, not, it's not my strong suit, but I have learned that in order to be able to lead and help my team or my organization get to where I believe it should go, that developing the skill set of networking is extremely important and being able to put yourself out there. And in particular, in my, in my case, I've always worked for a company and a product that I absolutely believe in. And so it becomes easier when you believe in the work that you're doing to be able to talk to other people about it. And when you go into that networking space, understanding what is the language of value here. Uh, is it about bottom line? Is it about outcomes for kids? Is it about saving money? Is it about bringing in diverse and, and really amazing talent? What is sort of the, uh, what is the currency of power that you need to be able to understand and then communicate how your team, your product, your work is going to be able to help them uh, reach that, that bottom line? I think those are skills that I have had to learn, and I've had some really amazing mentors, uh, uh, managers that I've looked up to, um, people in my life where I will watch them network and I will sort of model myself after that. And it's never easy and it's never comfortable, but I know how important it is to be able to have those skills and continue to build those skills, even if it's not something that I would say every day. Uh, you know, that's not something I enjoy doing every day, but it's something that's necessary. Cocktail parties and networking events are not fun. Stop mm -hmm. trying to make it fun. It's not fun. No, I agree with you. I totally agree with you. And um, so you're, this is something that you've kind of developed over time. Obviously, you've had a lot of opportunity to grow that skill. Is that, uh, is that a large part of your responsibility currently is, is a kind of communicating and, and, and networking with folks? I wouldn't say it's a large part of what I have to do now, but every time I'm able to or put in a position of being able to do that and gain more support for the work that we're doing, I know it's furthering the work that we're doing. It's furthering our name and our opportunity to be uh, to find more students to come to the program, to find a new future instructor, to find uh, you know someone who says, I would love to continue to support you financially. And so for me, while that's not necessarily a written into my job description, I find it extremely important that I can do that in multiple different spaces. Uh, this weekend, I was in DC facilitating a workshop. And even though I'm, I'm there not facilitating for Turing, I, I'm there to be able to talk about the work that we're doing and every opportunity I can get to be able to understand what someone else is doing and see where we could potentially connect. That's a space for me to gain another supporter of Turing, of the work that we're doing here in Denver. Uh, and so to me, it's while it's not, um, it's not written into my job description as 25%, but I believe it's essential. And as a leader, I, I would hope that people are leading in places that they feel like they want to be able to talk about that and share those stories and build connections across their, not only within their organization, but with other organizations. Yeah, it's not quite so, an evangelism role, but it's close. Uh, sorry, go ahead, Kendall. Well, so so talk a little bit about what your role looks like right now. I mean, you 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 went through sort of this history, and what what is what does your day to day actually look like as a senior director of programs at Turing? I 
I do a little bit of everything, but my primary responsibilities are to ensure that both our academic program and our career program are operating at full capacity, high functioning, and meeting the outcomes that we want to see for students. So we are a nonprofit school. We only exist because students want to come here. And if we are not doing our job for students, we probably won't exist much longer. So we are, I spend most of my time thinking about how do we improve the level of instruction, though I will say I think it's pretty good right now. Uh, but we can continue to get better because, as I mentioned before, every new cohort of students is a different cohort of students, which means we have to keep thinking about the ways that we grow and change. I think a lot about our career development support. So we believe that uh, we, we very much enjoy when students graduate our program. We think it's wonderful. We have a nice big ceremony. They get to ring this gong, which is very exciting to students for some reason. Um, and that's all wonderful. They're, they, you know, we bring all the parents and family and supporters together. Um, but that's not our end goal. Our end goal is to ensure that they, are, they have the skills to be able to secure a high fulfillment career in tech, in software development in particular. And so for us... We have to continue to, and my main job is to ensure that we are continually focusing on employment and time to hire. How do we ensure that our students are prepared to graduate and be able to secure a job? And that is both technically they can do the job, but also that they have the skill set to be able to get the job. They can talk about themselves. They are good collaborators. They know how to be a good teammate. They understand the importance of diversity and inclusion. Um, all of those things have to be a part of the work that we do. So I spend most of my time thinking about how can we align our supports better to that, whether it's through new programming or shifting our pro programmatic uh, approach to the, the curriculum that we have, thinking about the scope and sequence, working with my two academic directors to say, is the quality of work that we're seeing enough? Uh, do we want to see higher quality work? Do we need to see stronger emphasis in this area or this area? Uh, and then I spend a lot of time working across our operations team to say, how do we continue to ensure we're bringing the best students in who are prepared? So we have an entire set of programming that happens in their pre-work before they step foot into the physical location. And now I oversee all of that as well. So uh, I do a lot of different things. I will say today I was uh, giving students direct feedback on their Mod 4 Lightning talks. So I do a little bit of everything. I also lead our staff development. So every week we have a staff meeting. I, I lead those spaces, facilitate those spaces, ensure that we're thinking about our staff culture in addition to all of the hard work that we're doing for our students. Interesting. Wow. That is a What's, ton of uh, stuff. What's a problem that's top of mind for you right now? Well, where should I start? Um, right now, let me, I'm going to pull up my actual list because I think this is, this is a <laughs> good place for me list. to come back. Uh, of course I have a list. The, the trick is to not uh, write down all of the problems and then you never become overwhelmed by them. If you can only keep one in your they're mind just, at a time. They're just, yeah, they're just opportunities. They're just opportunities for us to continue to grow. Um, I would say that one of the pieces that we haven't figured out yet is, as I mentioned before, and, and this is something I actually spend a lot of time thinking about, 
our time to hire for when a student graduates Turing is not exactly where we want it to be yet. While we are very proud of the time to hire, we can we can pull out you know our average time to hire for students who get jobs. We can hire out and we have a median. We still have some job seekers that are what we think is just too long in the program. And even for our seekers who, uh, you know, we set a very, very significant goal to say we want to be at about 90% of our students are hired within 90 days of graduating. Um, this is a huge goal for us to be able to hit. So I spend a significant amount of time thinking about what more do we need to do to be able to ensure this is happening. Mm. But it's also about even when I think about students giving up their jobs, coming to Turing for seven months, uh, another three months after that, an average of 90 days, that's 10 months total now that you've spent out of your life without a paycheck, probably a little bit more than that because you stopped to do your pre-work beforehand. And we know even when you sign that job offer, you're maybe a month away from an actual paycheck. So how can we get that time even, even tighter so that we are seeing more students graduate with jobs? We're seeing students within that first 30 days get a higher number of jobs. And that comes from, it's such a multi-tiered approach. It's not one solution that's going to get us there, but it's about how do we make more connections with future employers? How do we leverage our alumni network? How do we ensure we're preparing students on the technical side? How do we ensure they're ready for those interviews and the different types of interviews they might get? How do we ensure that they've gotten a lot of feedback? They get a lot of feedback here, but they might need even more feedback about how do they present themselves and uh, what do they, how do they show up as a teammate and all of those places. So there's a lot to this. This is not just one single problem that I think we can um, easily yeah. put a, a plan into place, but it really is. It requires our entire team to be taking steps in that same direction. So we have to make sure we're aligning our team and why this matters. And it's not just I think oftentimes when we set goals, it's like it just becomes numbers. You know, it's just people aren't motivated. Many, many people aren't motivated by numbers. Some people are. Um, but in the work of education, we have to continue to make this about people. It's about our students and, and the success stories are success stories. But when we see someone struggling in that job hunt, it is, I mean, it is like heart wrenching to see them struggle in that job hunt. And so how do we continue to make sure that we are um, supporting our team to be able to do that work and also raising the bar for what students need to be able to do while they're here so that uh, as a good parent would say right you eat your vegetables you get strong and these are the things you have to do even if you don't like it how do we ensure that we're really really as an entire team supporting students in this we're all aligned to why it matters so much because the difference between um a 30-day job hunt and a six-month job hunt is so significant in all of all of the different ways that impacts your life. Absolutely. Hmm. And you you obviously, you know, you're hugely motivated to make a difference in the lives of the folks that are, you know, entrusting you with their their time off of their jobs if they've left a job to come to your program. Um, do you do you also see, I mean, I, the impression I get, obviously my perspective on teachers is that they're generally motivated by all the right things. They want to help. Like people don't mm -hmm. become teachers because, I don't know, my perspective is people don't become teachers because they want to be in charge of stuff um, or, right. you know, for other negative reasons. They're generally hugely motivated. So I feel a, uh, it, it must be super interesting to have folks who are working for you in this organization who aren't necessarily succeeding. Do you 
do you have issues with people who aren't succeeding in, as teachers in your organization? And how do you approach that? Is there a process for that? Mm-hmm. Given that they're not, you know, it's not, I don't feel like it's the same sort of thing as like some random software engineer going to their job and, you know, knocking out a few hundred lines of code or whatever. It's right. less significant <laughs> in terms of right. what it matters to the world. So if given that perspective, which may be false, <laughs> what is it different to to have to discipline and train and, and, and possibly fire teachers? Oh, oh good question. Um, so I would say that, you know, if we were talking K-12 education, I would say it is extremely hard to, uh, as, as you using that same language, right, discipline and fire teachers. I think K-12 is a whole different ballgame. Yeah, yeah. Here at Turing, uh, we have, we, we, we spend a lot of time ensuring that our instructional team is able to build on the strengths that they bring Every single one, I, I mean, I will say I love my team. I love my entire team. They are all very amazing people. And because we can spend the time in the hiring process to not only uh, recruit and cultivate people that we think are just really great people uh, and also have the desire to give back to their community, to see other people be successful and who want to make a difference, um, we have kind of this prime opportunity to support people in, in growth and development. Uh, when I came to Turing three years ago, I came specifically as an instructional coach. So at the time, uh, three years ago, the staff was um, mostly software developers who had uh, come in as instructors but did not have a tremendous amount of instructional background, understanding pedagogy, understanding adult learners, understanding sort of just some good foundations about how to lead a class beyond just a lecture. And so spent a significant amount of time, even with that group of amazing people, uh, talking about and really building the background into uh, here are some of the skills that you just haven't had a chance to build yet. I mean, so often I feel like uh, people are trying to do their best, but they just might not have all the tools in their toolkit to be able to do that. So how do you give people the right tools first? Uh, how do you really use what I would say is some strengths-based coaching to be able to leverage the things that they're doing really well and then narrow in on the one or two things that they can continue to improve and stretch? Because I, I, w- I will say in particular, adults don't love being in that uncomfortable mm-hmm. space for too long. They have to see some success. They have to be able to see themselves growing and working. And they, in many ways, and I think this is a true part of leadership, is being able to authentically acknowledge the work that they're doing and the growth that they're having, right? It's not just good job, good mm-hmm. job, good job. You're doing great. You're doing great. Like that doesn't mean anything, right? But uh, in this lesson, here's the difference from this time to last time. And then to be able to see it reflected back in students who will say, like, wow, I just like this all clicked together because of the things that you did in that lesson, right? Yeah. So um, we asked our team to take a lot of risks to try some new things, but also we had to support them in that. So it's not just, hey, I want you to like go out and try to f- teach this new concept that you've never taught before in this way. Go do it, right? It's like, let's plan the lesson. Let's talk through all the skills. Let's practice it if we need to practice it. And then I'll be in the room to, to help you to see and we can course correct as we go, depending on what's happening. I'm super curious about something you said, some, uh, something you said a few moments ago about um, people not understanding the difference between leading a class versus just standing in front of them and teaching a lesson. 
Uh, mm-hmm. Can you mm-hmm. say a little bit more? Are there some some high points there you can point to that are, are the differentiators? Yeah, I will say that I think anyone can give a great lecture. Um, I, th- I think there are many, many people in the world who can do just an excellent job of lecturing because all lecturing means is essentially I'm going to provide you with content and up to you if you choose to take that and learn that and think about that in another way. Teaching, true teaching, uh, the things that we care about here is really about the engagement between students and the content. And so if we think about um, the difference of just standing up in front of class and getting through a lesson uh, versus the whole point that students are there is to learn something. And if we're just going to have them sort of get through content, they could read it on their own, right? What's the Mm -hmm. point of being in person in this space? Point of being in person in the space is to really think about how do you push them outside of their zone of proximal development, push them into the places that they're going to be challenged, push them just beyond what they can do on their own because you have more, a little bit more experience and some more knowledge, but really you know what questions to ask and really where to push them to think about these things on a greater scale, to build connections across patterns, to build connections across the things that they've done before. So that lesson is not just something they went through, it's something now that has changed them and they can take it with them beyond the walls of that classroom. That's not something where they would say, yeah, I memorized these 10 vocabulary words and now I'm just gonna Google them anyway, Mm -hmm. right? It's, I understand why these things are so important I understand that I have to really think about the patterns between these or the relationships between how these things work together, because I'm going to constantly, and in particular in the field of technology, I'm going to constantly be coming up against things that I don't know and I've never seen before and no one else on my team has ever seen it before. So if I don't know how to approach those problems and if I don't know how to become a critical thinker about it, then I'm not going to get very far in my career. So Direct, you know, if we, if we talk about lecture, right, lecture does not challenge most times. Uh, it's not pushing people to really engage that critical thinking, but true teaching, true instruction, the things that are going to make a difference for people of why do you show up here and spend seven months with us in a basement with no windows yeah. is, is because <laughs> of the push that we give in that in-person opportunity. Yeah, it sounds it's more collaborative uh, and also more of a sense of continuity is important. Like under, remembering how they responded to a thing previously, like you said, and mm-hmm. bringing it forward so they can use that same experience to learn again. Uh, so. You are you are not just a blank slate. Yeah, right? yeah. So totally. that that's you have so many experiences outside of this world. Even if you've never been a software developer before, you you've still faced challenges that you haven't known what to do, and you have these skills. So how do we help you really harness those skills and then apply it in these new situations? And I will say that when when companies hire from Turing graduates, they will say, "Wow, you know, they they just." They came in and they had these skills and I didn't have to teach them those things. I would love to hire someone else. Oh, and that's great. the thing, right? Because you can you can learn a new framework. You can learn a new language. Um, but being able to have those skills that you just, a, a teacher who can really facilitate that learning and push people to be uncomfortable in a safe space, in a place where they can be vulnerable, they can say they don't know, uh, they can ask questions. That's, we want to model how do you really engage at an extremely yeah. high level. 
Yeah, that involves a certain amount of, of uh, managing the other students, right? Talking about making this a safe space to not know what you're doing, to, to be mm-hmm. wrong, to fail. Has, is that often difficult uh, with, or are there, are there typically challenges there with, with keeping the entire class a safe place? Yes, uh, it can be. Sure, it can be. Every group is different. We think that our process, our interview process, uh, has some self-selection. It, you know, we tell people if you just want to uh, learn how to code by yourself, we're, we're probably not the right school for you. This is we're about community and we're about collaboration. And when you walk into our hallways, you see students just you know at pairing stations everywhere, talking to each other, reaching out and asking for help, reaching out to the upper mods. So. Uh, this is um, not the place where you're going to just be an individual. And so we think that part of our selection process and sort of our interview process uh, already brings in people who are uh, more open to that. They might not be that uh, familiar with it, but they're very open to the idea of that, or they've been in environments where they have have really been successful in that space. And I think as as you come back to this idea of leadership, um, we try to build that in our team first so that our team can go and build it in their classrooms. So almost, uh, I, w- I would say that many of the things that we do as a team are the things then that our instructors are more willing to do with their cohorts. Um, so sharing stories about their past or their path to get here or sharing their strengths or sharing their areas of growth or being able to, um, you know, super simple, but at the beginning of every time we start a, a new inning or a new a time section of our school, it's names and pronouns. And let's just like start from ground one and build a p- place where everyone can feel like, yeah, it's okay. Like it's okay to be you and we're all here and we're all trying to learn. And uh, we really push our instructors to model that it's okay to fail um, and it's okay to not know all the answers. And um, that can be really uncomfortable for people. And so, so much of the work that we try to do in our team is really to say, like, we're never going to ask you to do something that we wouldn't do. So, so I want to, I want to dig a little bit more on that, Ellen Mary, that um, yep. when you become a teacher and you're standing up in front of the class, you're a leader of students and, you know, whether mm-hmm. they're in fourth grade or adults transitioning to a second career, I imagine there's, there's some big differences there, but now you're in a position where you're the leader of leaders, right? Like you're helping these mm-hmm. teachers lead and just like, what mm-hmm. is this like, particularly in your context? How do you think about being a leader of leaders and how is that different from just being a leader? Hmm. Well, that's an, that's an interesting way to phrase that, a leader of leaders, yeah. Um, I would say that I try to ensure that I am leading I, I believe in leading by example. I believe that, as, as I said, I, I will tell my team, I'll never ask you to do something I wouldn't do myself. Um, I, don't, I don't think that's very fair. And I think if I haven't been uncomfortable in that place, then I'm not going to ask other people to do it. Uh, that's also how I facilitate our staff sessions and think about the work that we're doing there. Um, as a leader of leaders, I think it becomes like I have two amazing directors who uh, oversee our front end and back end programs. And I spend a tremendous amount of time with them. And I think that the, 
I, I want to know them and I want to know their areas of growth and their strength, but also just them, like as people, who are they and what are the things that matter just in their lives and how can I connect the work we're doing to some of those things that are super important to them. And so the time that we spend together, as a leader of leaders, I have to invest so closely in my essentially direct leadership team because I know then how they're going to respond when we have to take on something tough. Or I, I really can build the trust with them so that they believe that they can ask me the really tough questions that their team is going to ask them, that we can dig into some things that we don't agree with all the time. And I think if we can't have disagreement, then we're not going to get very far. But yeah. um, setting up a team so that you can really dig into the tough stuff allows you to be able to really set them up for success. Like I don't, I would never be successful if my, uh, my next level of directors is not successful and therefore then our instructors are not successful. My success only comes through them. Right. So if I don't invest in them and really understand that and have tough conversations with them too about, Hey, we're not seeing the things that we want to see yet. What do we need to do about it? And what do we solve? How do we solve this problem together? Because this is not, you know, it's on you to fix it. And I want to see the result in another week. It's that same kind of understanding. Do they have this? Do they have the tools they need? Great. Then do they have the right approach? Then let's figure out a different approach. And how do we come together and be able to build on the best ideas possible? Because many times my idea is not the best idea. And it's really that level of communication to be able to get to the best idea, right? Like, I don't care if it's my idea. I care that we're getting to the outcomes that we want to get to. So knowing enough to be able to put my ideas aside many times or the way that I quote unquote want it to be done, to just hold that and say, it's not that it has to be done this way. What are the ways that it's going to work for our team? And how do we really take that context into into, um, account as we're going to solve this problem? Sure. Okay. Well, and then... I have to pivot. I have lots of follow-up questions to all these things, but for time's sake, we got we got to keep moving. But uh, the one question we do ask everyone on this podcast is, what is your relationship with authority? How do you feel about having authority over other people? Uh, and conversely, how do you feel about other people having authority over you? I am someone who respects authority very much in my life. Always have been a rule follower, always will be a rule follower. Uh, when the rules, I think, matter. Um, That's my caveat, when the rules matter. So I have been around really great leaders who um, have shown me and have been rule breakers who have said, you know, it doesn't matter what this, what's been, what's happened before, um, you know, we're going to do it this way. And that's always left me a little bit uncomfortable because I don't always feel like, that we have to break everything to make it better. So my personal value is to be able to think about um, the rules are probably there for a reason. Authority exists for a reason, but how do we make it work for us? So when I think about my my executive director, who is my boss, um, I you know at the end of the day he has this he has the final say on what we're going to do, and I'm going to I'm going to do everything I can to be able to communicate with him around what do I think is, uh, what do I think is really important when he's making this decision, but I also need to trust him that he's going to see things that I don't see. And therefore, sometimes we're going to make this, he's going to make a decision that maybe I won't like. Mm -hmm. Um, I 
believe the same thing of my team, that I want them to be able to trust me and, and believe that I have, I see sometimes things that they can't see given the roles that they're in. And also that it is important that we are working together to come up with the best solution. Um, I would, authority is like an uncomfortable, I would say like, I don't love that word. It makes me like, ugh, authority. Um, because I don't, yeah. I don't believe that great leaders sort of wield authority. I think that they bring presence and I think that they bring focus. And I think that great leaders are uh, vision aligned and that they're clear on outcomes and very clear on expectations. Those are things that are not about, I have the power over you and therefore it's going to happen. It's about, I've created the conditions to, for everyone on my team to be successful. And I'm willing to say when it's not successful. Yeah. Mm. Well, Do you feel it? like you have a different relationship with authority than you did when you were a little kid, perhaps, or in high school? Yeah, I'm much more willing to push on it than I was when I was <laughs> when I was younger. And I and um, I think that it's not just for the sake of pushing, right? I'm not going to waste. Uh, you know, there's only so much energy that you have in the day. So I just like to be really thoughtful about the energy that I'm going to use to push against systems. Um, and, and I would say that authority or power is a system and often can be used as a system of oppression. Um, mm -hmm. So I just need to be really thoughtful about the places that I'm going to I'm going to push on um, because I only have so much energy and I have to make sure that if we come full circle, I have to make sure that I'm able to show up 100 percent every day. Um, and so I have to make sure that I'm just really maintaining and thoughtful about myself as a woman in a leadership position. Um, it's, it's, there's a lot of extra taxes on you that, um, can really just expend that energy a whole lot faster. Oh yeah, definitely. Sure. The pick your battles thing is huge, yep. huge for sure. So, so as we come up on time here, Ellen, Mary, tell us a little bit about life outside of work. Uh, what kinds of things do you do in your spare time for hobbies and or otherwise? Oh my gosh, that assumes I have a life outside of work, Kendall. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I do, I do. I have a life outside of work. Uh, I spend a lot of time with my wife, uh, who is a teacher, and um, and our two golden doodles. Uh, we, we spend a lot of time in our backyard and hiking and going out and just loving Colorado and loving the great state that we live in. Um, and also, you know, I, I can't say without it's football season. I'm, I'm a green Bay Packers fan and I watch football every Sunday. Oh. So there you oh, go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is all you do. I am so not aware <laughs> of this stuff. Oh, that's cool. You have, Great. you have a, I wonder, do you, do you have heavy discussions with your wife about teaching and the issues thereof? Or is always. that something you keep completely at home? Oh, oh okay. no, always. We dig into it. Um, <laughs> and, in you know, I think it, it's heavy discussions because it is connected to things that matter. And um, the, the work, you know, when work, when work really is about people and it matters every day, she's working with kids who have everything, every opportunity in front of them, but also adults, it have a lot of authority to wield power in some really weird ways around kids and in education mm -hmm. in particular. Um, so we talk a lot about that and um, talk a lot about just how do we make sure that we are supporting each other in that space. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm not surprised by that. I mean, yeah, the, the conversations about people make it 
home. It's mm-hmm. the po- conversations about the minutia of work, meh, mm-hmm. but about <laughs> the people for sure. Yeah, for sure. Well, so, I mean, we do have to wrap up for time's sake. Ellen, Mary, if people want to find you on the internet, where can they find you? Uh, sure. I'm on LinkedIn. E.M. Uh, e. Hickman with two N's on that last name. It's a German last name. Um, and also you can just find me on the Turing site. Uh, feel free to email me. I, I love meeting and talking. Well, that's a caveat. I love meeting and talking people in one-on-one situations, not at happy <laughs> hours. So one-on-one sounds great. Sounds awesome. good. Thank you Thanks so, so much, much for being with us. Absolutely. Yeah.